0: The first day of the retreat is by far the hardest. It's rather like a first day in hospital. And the silence is strange to those who are new here. And the five talks in the day is just enough to break a camel's back. And so, therefore, I think tomorrow and the next day become easier because one talk goes out to make way for confession. And so, therefore, it is difficult. We don't have much time to ourselves. And really, perhaps we get too much material shouted at us without time to digest it. I should have said this morning that the Cardinal Newman, when he became an Episcopalian, uh, he resigned immediately from the Bible Society, of which he was the local secretary. He was a great scripture scholar in his way, but he suddenly realized that he didn't approve of the Holy Book being given out because it led Uh, to people imagining that a book bound by two covers could include all truth by itself, and that therefore he would not have approved, I'm sure, of the Gideon Bibles in the hotels, though it's a sincere gesture that puts them there. But long before he became a Catholic, he changed his whole view on scripture because reading the Fathers of the Church, he realized that the Bible comes second not in holiness, it's inspired word of God, but as the great Presbyterian, Dr. Barclay, rightly said, just not long before he died the other day, we must remember that the church founded the Bible. The Bible didn't found the church. That, after all, the church ran for some 300 years before the New Testament was in everybody's hands. The New Testament, one letter was at Ephesus and one letter was at Corinth, and it was only brought together in the time, say, of St. Jerome. So therefore, Newman was quite right in saying that there's a teaching tradition of the Church, and the Bible supports that, but you must get things in the right order. On the other hand, Newman was so marvelous in his knowledge of the Bible, and gives us so many cases to think about, certainly opened my eyes to the Old Testament, um, and he makes this a marvelous statement that when you can read yourself then you'll profit by reading the Bible. That that self-knowledge is one of the key things required so that when I read the Bible I can know what to look for otherwise as he says you get a lot of scenes and you get a certain amount of sentiment and you get a great appreciation of the literature of the Bible but you end with a lump of sentimentality Whereas the Bible, really, for us, as you'll see just now, if you read the scenes he suggests, the Bible is the extraordinary thing that I can only understand it when I can understand myself, my weaknesses, my aspirations. Our meditation now, and I don't think St. Ignatius would object, that we give the first four talks of the retreat to sin, not big sins, but the sort of things we've thought about already where you know but don't do something, where you don't uh, you promise and don't fulfill a promise, all these little things that look, search for holiness, all these things are pert- pertain to the spiritual exercises. Ignatius gave a whole week um, of the month in his retreat uh, to thinking about sin. Then after that we move on. But I thought I'd like to end uh, with this particular subject, sincerity and hypocrisy. It's the most pertinent for most of us. We, this is a, Most of our sins we can't confess, they hardly can be put into words, but the worry in our hearts, nearly all of us, I find, is that I'm a hypocrite, and therefore it's worthwhile just asking our Lord in our prayers on that point. I haven't mentioned much about Newman on prayer yet, because he wrote a lot, but for my own life, I've written a book on prayer I've read a lot and I felt that what I really wanted was a new way of approaching the truth of the bible now the text he takes on hypocrisy is the famous one Matthew 5:20 I tell you unless your holiness surpasses that of the scribes and pharisees you shall not enter the kingdom of god notice it says your holiness so we go back to a frame of mind if your frame of mind doesn't surpass the Pharisees, then you'll not get to heaven. Wesley, the great founder of the Wesleyan Church, he made a comment on that which said, far from surpassing the holiness of the scribes and Pharisees, we may find it difficult to keep up with them, which is a very severe judgment, Uh, but Cardinal Newman later supported that because he pointed out that the Pharisees and scribes only had the old law. They had no sacraments like we have. They only had the law of Moses and an external religion, whereas we have all the aids that our Lord brought for us when he became a man. So we ought to be miles ahead of them. Uh, But are we? And how far are we hypocrites? Now, what I found so helpful myself in Cardinal Newman was that... He first drew our attention to the fact that it's a very rare form of hypocrisy in which a bad man deliberately puts on an act to fool and deceive others. We're inclined to think, and that is, I suppose, a total hypocrite, a man who is bad, but in order to deceive the good and to get his way, he pretends externally to be holy when he isn't. Now, Newman says that does happen there are cases in history where you could say that did happen. When I was a small boy, my father used to read to me in history about that extraordinary man, Talleyrand, uh, the Archbishop of Autun, I think, in France, who apostatized, joined the French Revolutionary Committee of Public Safety, et cetera, then served under Napoleon, and then became ambassador in London for the French after the Napoleonic Wars, He was a bishop, and bishops, when they're dying, their hands are consecrated with holy oils on the back of their hands because they received their consecration at at ordination. And Talleyrand, who had never let on, turned his hands over just before he died to to show the priest that he was a bishop. But for years and years and years and years, he never practiced at all. And he came to the States, and did very well out of you like so many others, like myself. So therefore, Talleyrand always seems to me, he fascinated me at the time as being a complete hypocrite. He fooled people and then he hid what he really was. But I think Newman's right to say that most people don't, aren't real hypocrites. First of all, they fool themselves. The Pharisee in the temple, he wasn't a deceitful person. He, he told the truth, he went and prayed there. He thanked God he was not as other men, which is true. He said, I fast, I pay tithes, and I go to the temple, I say my prayers. None of those things were wrong. The only strange thing is that his prayer wasn't pleasing to God. The little man next to him, the tax man who knelt down and said, Lord, remember me a sinner, pardon me a sinner, that's all he said, Our Lord said his prayer was more pleasing. You suddenly find that the Pharisee was telling the truth, but he was relying on himself, and he thought himself to be marvelous. Now, you may feel, well, that he was a very conceited man, yes, but are we any better? That's the strange thing. I find uh, that it's very easy for us to be Pharisees without knowing it. Then you get a Pharisee fools himself, then he fools his neighbor, and of course, as Newman says, he eventually tries to fool God. And he says, I'm a sinner, when he doesn't mean it, and he doesn't repent. And he, 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 he says to God, Newman says in the gospel, if you ever find a man que- questioning our Lord and making excuses, he's nearly always a hypocrite, because God sees everything. You can't try and bluff God, as we'll see with Balaam in a minute, and the others. But you do get, in the gospel, Pharisees and even ourselves when we pray to our Lord and we say we're sorry and all that, but we go on doing the same thing. We don't change our frame of mind, and so we are hypocrites. So I think it's most terrible to think that I could be a hypocrite, fool myself, fool my neighbor, and fool, try to fool our Lord, which you can never do. You can't make an excuse with God. There's no way. He, only He can make an excuse for us. So when you sort of, any your prayer ever has a kind of excuse in it, you feel there's something slightly wrong with it. Now, I find, you see, that the Pharisees, what did they do? They didn't do anything very bad. The first thing we are told in the Gospel is that they murmured in their hearts. Well, I do that all day, never stop for a minute. Especially on an airplane. I never stop for a moment. I say, why can't that fool sit down and put your cigarette out and Don't go to the toilet just when the plane is going to land and keep that baby still and I'm absolutely horrifying Not really. Thank God we're not on the radio or I'd be done Murmuring in your heart. We do it all the time. There she goes again. Look at her now and we never stop Spraying acid everywhere but We all do it when the Pharisee sat at the table next to our Lord, he was simply saying in his heart, look, he ought to know that woman's a sinner. He oughtn't to be dealing with her. Now, I find it very hard you can't confess that. If you come to me and say, I murmured in my heart, so I'll say, well done, old fellow, that's right, now you're a human being. Another thing they did, they murmured in their hearts. then we know they put burdens on others which they didn't keep themselves. And that would immediately apply to your home, your children, your wife, the underlings in the office, um, demanding tremendous discipline there, which I don't practice myself. The third thing which Newman mentions is the one that Caiaphas, we blame him for. He said it is expedient for one man to die for the people. How many times do we uh, deal with expediency? How very many times we do a dishonorable thing in a way, explaining it because this is the most expedient way at the moment. Even though it's not very worthy, uh, we must do it. In business, I imagine, yes, in borrowing, in interest, in all, every way in my life, you find how easily you take the expedients. So Newman puts those three down, and there are two or three others, I think we can say. You see, in a way, although we know we're sinners, and that we can't dodge, and put it ashamed of ourselves, we yet think ourselves pretty good. I've yet to meet a person who doesn't think he's good looking. No, I've never known anybody to say, well, I'm ugly. At least they spend an awful long time in the mirror if they are. And usually when they say, if they are ugly, they say, well, i am not much to look at, but I've got a lovely nose, or my eyes are very nice. It's the most odd how you, uh, people, all we all think we're fairly decent to look at, we, it's extraordinary when you make a list of those things that we all think. We all think we're good-looking. We all think our writing is legible. That's an extraordinary. Everybody thinks everybody else can read their writing. You say, can't you see that's an eye? No, of course he can't. It isn't. The doctors have got to take that to heart. So you've got people thinking that their writing's legible. Everybody thinks they're broad-minded. Have you ever met anyone who said, well, I'm narrow-minded, sorry? (laughs) Never. We all think, no, I'm narrow-minded on that point because I'm a good Catholic. we always got a reason for being narrow-minded, but otherwise we think we're pretty smashing as far as I can see. And I find people say that. Robert Hugh Benson said, you remember, he said, a bore is a person who talks about himself when I want to talk about myself. (laughs) And how often I've had that, I think, well, this chap, shut up. <laughs> and then you say, oh, by the way, did I tell you what I did the other day? It's extraordinary how you do this. And then you get another, all these funny things. Everyone thinks they've got a sense of humor. People never, I've never known a man say, so well, of course, I have no sense of humor. That's the one thing my mother never gave me. <laughs> no, we, the, the biggest bores think they've got a sense of humor. And then what is so funny is, as Cardinal Newman says, we say to ourselves, my heart's in the right place whatever that means. It isn't apparent at home, and I would never hurt a fly. We all think we're pretty decent about, we can hurt our children, we hurt our wife, we hurt the people, servants, people on the trains and airport, we and yet we all think, well, I'm really kind basically kind-hearted. So we very easily fall into the uh, situation of the Pharisees. When our Lord said, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye and don't see the beam in your own? Every one of us knows that that's exactly true. And so we have a very, very great reason in a retreat to ask God, I'm not going to have any sins to say in confession. I always find it a terrible job to know what to say with Father O'Leary. You know, you can't think of anything you've done wrong. Give a retreat all day and you, there's no room for sin. Oh, well, so was, and I have something to say. But the odd thing is uh, that nevertheless one is conscious all the time that I'm covering up. And that's why I like very much to stress that to, uh, to you, that it's not so easy to say you got your holiness has got to exceed the Pharisees until you get to know yourself and then look at the Bible uh, to see uh, what goes uh, went on there. Then you'll see it. Newman, of course, t- tells us first to go and look at Adam in Genesis. When Adam uh, had uh, sinned, he hid in the bushes and God came down in the evening And God walked there and uh, called Adam and Adam said I'm in here and God said what are you doing in the bushes and he said I'm naked and so I hid myself God said to Adam who told you you were naked Adam tried to fool God in a funny way he made an excuse which was crazy with the infinite God then he put the blame on his wife what's so strange is that Cain did the same in the very next chapter When our Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Cain was pouting and Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? He just murdered him. He killed his brother out of jealousy, but he um, tried to cover it up. It's the beginning of Watergate, Genesis. It's an extraordinary thing when you go through. Newman suggests that it's a very profitable thing in the Bible to take the book of Kings And I did that for myself. If you take the book of Kings, uh, no, it's the book of Samuel, and you start at chapter 17 of the first book and go through to about chapter 11 of the second book, you will see the utter degradation of poor David. And David started so beautifully when he beat Goliath. He's such a charming character, and he's so totally innocent and brave, and you can't help, Almost falling in love with David when he first appears in Samuel 17, book one. And then you go right on and you'll see little by little David's still nice, and then sl- slowly you see jealousy, envy, wanting money, wanting praise, all these things sneaking into David's life until he ended up with that dreadful sin, quite the worst quite the worst sin in the Bible, especially from a man who wrote the Psalms, um, is that uh, where he murdered a man because he wanted his wife. He took this girl, he was on the roof one one day and uh, saw her washing on the other side of the road. The streets in Jerusalem are pretty narrow so you can see quite a thing or two. And, And so he saw this girl, fell in love with her at first sight, called her over, slept with her, and then found she was another man's wife. So he didn't know what to do. There was a good walloping sin. And then to his horror, he found that she was going to have a baby, and, and then the husband was coming home on leave from the front. So David got this chap Urah and wanted him quickly to go and sleep with his wife so that he could, the baby would be blamed on him. But this beastly Urah was the kind of one of these men who salutes the flag all the time. And he said, Oh, I wouldn't go and sleep with my wife while my and country are suffering, so he insisted on staying in the palace, and David didn't know what to do. David got boozed him up and got gallons of wine and poured it into Uriah, but being a GI, he managed to cope with it all and was (laughs) still saluting the flag drunk. So David didn't know what to do then, so finally he wrote to the commanding officer and said, put this chap in the worst place in the battle, have him killed. So poor Uriah went back and was killed in the line, and then David had a day of national prayer for our heroes who've fallen, having murdered one. It's extraordinary. If you go through Samuel 1 from 17 uh, on to Samuel 2, about 11, you'll come to David's sin. You see the thing happening, a jealous man, a man who started so innocently and then was covering up, and yet he was a saintly man, we know. His miserere Psalm 50, which he wrote, is quite the best act of contrition ever made. Or you can look again, as, uh, Dave, as uh, Cardinal Newman says, in the second book of Kings. Uh, this chap's amazing, old Hezekiah. I loved, I would love him. Hezekiah was ill. In those days when Hezekiah was mortally ill, the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, came and said to him, "'Thus says the Lord, put your house in order, for you are about to die, and you shall not recover. He turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, O Lord, remember how faithfully and wholeheartedly I conducted myself in your presence, doing what was pleasing to you, and Hezekiah wept bitterly. He was very holy then, and he reminded God of all the good things he'd done, so our Lord God was so touched that he sent the prophet back again to say you can have 15 more years. That's uh, verse 4. And they brought a fig poultice in, which is very good, and put it on his boil, and the boil burst, and he got back again, and then he was, became insufferable. he had all these people came up, and he took them into their tre- his treasury and showed them all the jewelry he'd got. And extraordinary thing. Having been given an extension of his life, he went to pot. And he was even worse than David, in a way, because God said to him, but you're showing off, and your wealth and all that. And God said, all that wealth of yours is going to be captured by the Babylonians. And Hezekiah worked it out that he'd be dead before that happens. So he's like we old men like I am, who feel, well, that's all right. I've got enough till I die. He didn't mind that all his jewelry and stuff was going off, but he could sit back like I do with soap and rusks and things, and you feel, I've got enough. I know a family in Liverpool, I think it was only about last year, they finished the soap that they'd hoarded since World War II. <laughs> they put so much soap away so that they wouldn't run out that they only just run out now. So they could sit back and say, we've well, got plenty of soap. But Hezekiah is an, a scream. And then the funniest of all I found was uh, was Balan. And he's so good because I never realized how important he was because St. John mentions him in the Apocalypse, St. Peter mentions him in his letter, even St. Jude, who only had one, one chapter in his letter mentions Balaam. And Balaam's an extraordinary man. You'll find it in the book of Numbers. That's rather high class to read the book of Numbers. You um, start at chapter 22 and he goes on to chapter 24. He's an extraordinary chap because Balaam was a f- soothsayer and magician of, of false religion out on the Euphrates. And when the Jews came pouring down from Egypt, passed down the mountains of Moab and came into the plain and were going to take over. There were thousands of them all pouring along and all the poor people who lived there were afraid that these uh, visitors and these uh, pilgrims or exiles were going to take their whole country, which they did. So they rang up uh, Balaam, who was a great magician, and asked him to come up and put a curse on the Jews. And Balaam was thrilled, he came flying up as quick as he could, and he knew there was money for putting on a curse, in fact he got the money from the king of the Moabites, he took the money, and then he was just going to curse the the Jews, and in those days they thought a curse would pretty well end them, they're very optimistic I think, Uh, but uh, they thought that, and so Balaam sort of was just going to curse them when God uh, intervened. Well, Balaam did, had, was a double man. He wanted his money for putting curses on people, and he was also scared stiff of God. And and the Moabites said, "Well, look, come and see the Jews on the left wing, and we'll put a curse on them, sort of thing." So he went over there, and just when he got there, God said, "Stop!" <laughs> and so he wanted to keep him with God, and so he put a blessing on the right left wing of the Jewish army. Then the the, the Moabites said, "Well, let's try the other wing and..." Cursed them over there, so Balaam happily went over there and started. He wanted to curse them, but Yahweh intervened. They, he had his own private little god, a pagan, but God intervened to stop him, and then, as you know, he got on his donkey to go off, his ass to go off, and, and um, the, an angel came and stopped the donkey running along. It's an extraordinary story. I read up the uh, uh, commentators, and they all agree that that story of the donkey speaking was a kind of Walt Disney touch. It was an old um, late, it was an old fable of the Medes and Persians, and obviously the man put it in, where the donkey joined in and blew Balaam up for, uh, for not obeying God. Generally, at the end, Balaam four times blessed the Jews, having set out all the time hoping that he could curse them. And it's funny, well, St. John, St. John accuses him of one thing. They accuse them of getting the Jews to eat and the, corpses, uh, the sacrifices offered to idols. The great thing is he was a man with a double purpose. Newman says of him, the great thing is he had excellent excuses, but what you want to know is, did he have excellent motives? And you and I would have to think of that. So whether you look at Hezekiah or Adam or David, I think all three of them are most remarkable stories where a man was double. And this is the thing that you and I have got to struggle against, that we don't become double. Because that is the terrible thing our Lord said, you can't serve God and mammon, you must, serve one or, you must serve God or mammon, you can't serve both. And most of us are trying to serve both. So we've got, we're split personalities. I found in my room here, which I made myself, brought 18 years or so ago, 15 years ago, a wonderful book, The Perennial Philosophy uh, by Aldous Huxley. I used to read it when I was at the university. Most helpful book. It's an anthology of all religious thought. And I remember so well, I found it and I read it. And I've, it's a beautiful passage, a proverb right in the beginning, page 10, where an old Indian seer had this phrase, behold, but one in all things, it is the second that leads you astray. And Huxley says that this insight into the nature of things and the origin of good and evil is not confined exclusively to the saint, but is recognized obscurely in every human being, is proved by the structure of our language. For language, as Richard Trench pointed out long ago, is often wiser, not merely than the vulgar, but even than the wisest of those who speak it. Sometimes it locks up truths, which were once well known, but have been forgotten. In other cases, it holds the germs of truths which, though they were never plainly uh, discerned, the genius of its framers caught a glimpse of in a happy moment of divination. For example, how significant it is that in the Indo-European languages, as Darmstadt has pointed out, the root meaning, "to" should connote sadness or badness. The Greek prefix dis, as in dyspepsia, and the Latin dis, as in dishonorable, are both derived from duo, meaning two. The cognate bis gives a pejorative sense to such modern French words as bévu, which means a blunder. Traces of that second, which leads you astray, can be found in dubious doubt, and for doubt, for to doubt is to be double-minded. Bunyan has his mister facing both ways, and modern American slang has its two timers. Obscurely and unconsciously wise, our language confirms the findings of the mystics and proclaims the essential badness of division, a word, incidentally, in which our old friend, enemy two, makes another decisive appearance. Division is, is prefixed by the word dis- the word dis is always unhappy, and it always denotes a person who's trying to do two things at once. And that's why Newman very rightly in his, um, <coughs> in his sermon on hypocrisy points out that the basis of, of hypocrisy is that, that a person wants to be, uh, have a good time here and also to try and fool God that he's serving him. What's the difference between a practicing Catholic and a laps- nominal Catholic? both of them commit sin, both are sorry. One of them actually does something about it, the other one doesn't. He'd, he's very sad not to practice his faith, but at the same time he's very, very happy in a way to go on getting, like Balaam, ha- doing two things at once. Newman expressed it here, and that's the point at which I've probably come to an end. There are, in the estimation of double-minded men, two parties, God and myself. They wish in some way or other to be by themselves, to have a home, a chamber, a tribunal, a throne, a self, where God is not. A home within them which is not a temple, a chamber which is not a confessional, a tribunal without a judge, a throne without a king. The self That self may be king and judge and that the Creator may rather be dealt with and approached as though a second party, instead of he being the centre. It is this principle of self-seeking, so to express myself, this influence upon self, which is for our ruin. So we'd end on that note, that we want to think how double we are, and how much we cover up, try to fool God, our neighbour, and get our own way.